you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I'm going to ask you to um, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And this morning we're just going to be looking at, at two verses there in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Wes has, uh, Pastor Wes has walked us through some wonderfully marvelous passages of Scripture over the past couple of weeks. And so we arrive this morning now in verses 12 and 13, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. If you found your way there, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> and again, just a reminder, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and he says this in verse 12, "'So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence.'" Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And you can be seated. In our Sunday school class for uh, the junior high and the high schoolers, we've been going through uh, a systematic theology book, uh, going through the different areas of, of Scripture and doctrine and just building a foundation because it's something as Christians that we need to have. Uh, for so long in the church, there was really a neglect of the teaching of, of theology and doctrine for the, the layperson in the pew. It was oftentimes relegated. It was just for the pastor or for the staff to know uh, those areas of theology and doctrine. But for each one of us as Christians to have a, a robust understanding of what the Bible teaches and what we believe, not only as Christians, but even what we believe as a Baptist church is important for us to know. And when it comes to areas of doctrine, what you will find as you study theology is that there are certain areas uh, of where there is rigorous debate on what the Scripture teaches about the power of God involved in a situation and also the responsibility of man. And how do you reconcile those two things? There have been countless men over the years who have tried to spend time in reconciling those two things inside of the area of theology. But what we're going to find here in these passages this morning is Paul's instruction about the area of sanctification and how Scripture is clear here in this passage and in many other places. And when it comes to sanctification, there is both the involvement of God's sovereignty and of human responsibility. Now, if you hear that term sanctification, maybe you don't share, this morning don't know what that word means. Well, in script, Scripture teaches us that in our salvation, there's a threefold process of salvation. The first thing is that we are justified. When we are moved upon by the Holy Spirit and we repent and put our faith and trust in Christ, in that moment, God justifies us, which makes us clean before Him. He has given us Christ's righteousness. We are now justified before Him as, as if we've never done anything wrong. And, and all of us are honest this morning. We have a, a myriad of things that we have done wrong before the Lord this morning. But when we are justified in Christ, He sees Christ's righteousness in us. He no longer sees our unrighteousness. So we've been made just in Christ. And then, then starts the second part of salvation. And that's the process of sanctification, which we're going to talk about this morning. And then the third part is justification. That's the, the fulfillment of our salvation. That's when our salvation is... Can you hear me now? There we go. Okay. So... Sanctification has two roles of extreme that have developed, and we want to avoid both of these two extremes. The first is quietism. So that says, it's all of God and none of man. And you might have heard somebody say in their Christian walk and experience, well, just let go and let God. You ever heard anybody say that? And it really comes from the idea of quietism. That means, well, I'm just going to live my Christian life, and God will do all the work of sanctification in me, and I don't have to do anything. He just does it all for me. 
And that tends to be a more mystical and feelings-driven view. Uh, people try to base everything they can just on how they feel in the operative moment, but they really don't put any work towards the process of sanctification. Now, the opposite of that is an extreme called pietism. And pietism has a strict view and pursuit of doctrine and morality. Now, there's lots to be praised in that idea of pursuit of doctrine and, and avoiding things which are immoral or wrong to do. But the problem is, is that people that hold to pietism often err because they rely on their own personal strength and not the strength of the Holy Spirit. Whereas quietism says it's all of God and none of man, pietism says it's all of man and none of God. I'm going to make myself more sanctified. I'm going to make myself more holy. And so people who are given over to pietism often are carried into legalism or to pride uh, or into just moralism. And we see this happen in our nation quite a bit. Uh, we see people who are driven by morality, and oftentimes morality is classified as religion or as Christianity. But we're not trying just to be good moral people. We want to be moral people, but we want to be people who are being sanctified by God. People who are living holy, not just because we're wanting to look good, but because we're wanting God's transformative action to be doing something on the inside of us. So in our passage today, what we see from the Apostle Paul is that there is a dual role in sanctification. It's not all of God and none of man, and it's not all of man and none of God. There is a role that God does in the role of sanctification, but there's also a role that we do in the process of sanctification. And notice that Paul doesn't spend time here trying to reconcile the two, just as he does it when it comes to salvation. Because what we understand is that God is clear that there is a two-part process to sanctification. If we were to go over to 2 Peter, Peter talks about this because in the opening chapter of 2 Peter, Paul says, I mean, excuse, Peter says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So Peter makes it very clear, your salvation, this whole start of this process was entirely God's purpose and plan. He was the one who started it, he was the one who did it, and he's the one who will complete it. You had no part in that process. But now when Peter goes on to talk about how these Christians are to live out their life, listen to what he says. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, talking about what you're going to do, he says, in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, have forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So we see here this twofold work, that God is at work in us, but God has also said there is something that you must be doing in this process of sanctification. So the first thing I want you to notice from this passage there in verse 12, is that this is an obedient process. Look at what he says there in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. Now, the apostle Paul starts this phrase by saying, so then. And he's referring back to what had just been said in the previous part of the letter. He had just spending time encouraging the saints, number one, as Pastor West showed us, to follow the example of humility of Christ. 
looking at Christ's humility, looking at the example he said of coming to this earth, taking on human flesh, walking among sinful men, going to the cross, bearing down to the will of his Father. We are to follow that example of humility, but also to be encouraged by the exaltation of Christ, by seeing how holy Christ is, the, the, his glory and his splendor, and just to stand in awe of wonder of who he is. Paul says, with all of that in mind, he says, brothers, I want to encourage you in this process. He calls them his beloved. That was Paul's love for the church that's continually revealed. He uses this term over and over again, and it shows us Paul's heart for the church. In chapter 4 of this book, he would say, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul genuinely loved the church. It's important for us to understand that. Uh, The churches that Paul planted were not just a notch in his belt. Paul wasn't going around saying, well, I'm just going to see how many churches I can plant, see how many people I can get to, to, to recognize my power and authority, and then I'm just going to sit back and relish in the fame that I've created for myself. No, no, wherever Paul was, the churches that he had planted were never far from his mind. Even when he went from place to place, he was always thinking back. He was always concerned about what was happening in these different churches. And the church at Philippi was continually on his heart and mind, and we see this unfold here in these letters. He calls them his beloved because he's concerned about their soul. He's concerned about what's going on there. And he wants to ensure that they continue to do what God had called them to do. The thing that I love about the Apostle Paul is that Paul was willing to write both encouraging and challenging things to the churches. He was willing to write to them and say, here's what I see that you're doing that's good, and I want to encourage you in that. Here's what I see that you're doing that is glorifying to God. You keep doing that and, in fact, do it more. But he was also willing to say, here's what you're doing that's wrong. And you need to stop doing that. Here's what you're doing that is, that is displeasing to the Lord. And you need to turn away from those things and you need to deal with them. Paul knew that what the church needed the most was not to be coddled, but to hear the truth. False praise might have made the churches feel better for a moment, but ultimately it would serve for their own fall and destruction. So what Paul here wants to point out that this is an obedient process. And so he writes them and he says, My beloved church, my beloved church at Philippi, these brothers and sisters whom I love, he says, you have always obeyed. Just as you have always obeyed. Now we saw this earlier in chapter 1 when he writes to them and he's so encouraged by their obedience to, to faith, by their obedience to the gospel, by not just living a life that says that they're a Christian but never carrying it out, but by continuing to practice it even in the face of difficulty and persecution. And so Paul says, you have continued to do that. You've continued to obey what I have left behind. And this is the process of sanctification. They were continuing to do those things because God was at work in their heart and in their life. And they had to work towards those things. They were striving for that, Paul says. They were striving together for the sake of the gospel. We talked about what those words meant. The idea of warfare, the idea of endurance, the idea of an athlete who was performing in a race does not give up, but continues pushing forward. There is obedience in the process of sanctification. We are to do what the Scripture says we are to do. That's what it means to be a Christian. Oftentimes, we see Christians who would say, well, I'm a Christian. There was a big debate back in the 1980s about the lordship of Christ. Does Jesus have to be your Lord, or can he just be your Savior? There was a prevailing teaching at the time that you could have Jesus as Savior, but not have him as Lord. I believe the scripture is very clear that that is a contradictory concept. If Jesus is your Lord, if Jesus is your Savior, he will also be your Lord. 
He doesn't just save us to nothing. He saves us to a process of following after him. And if our hearts have truly been transformed, then we desire to be obedient to him. So sanctification is a process of obedience. It's a calling to do something. And Paul says, you have always obeyed. But I want you to secondly notice that it's a responsible process. Look at what he says. He says, you have obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So Paul says, I'm, I rejoice in the fact, and I want to challenge you, that you should be obedient to Christ when, I'm there with, when I was there with you. And he rejoiced in that fact. When Paul was there, obedience to Christ perhaps seemed somewhat easier to the church at Philippi. I want you to think about this. The Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest preacher in the New Testament outside of Jesus, he's the one who's your pastor. And so every time you sit down, you're hearing this man who's had such a relationship with the Lord and such a view and concept of who Christ is and just such a powerful preacher to be able to sit at his feet and to hear him teach the scriptures. It was a continual reminder for them when Paul was present with them. Okay, we know that Paul's going to be there. We know that Paul's going to ask us, okay, brother so-and-so, how was your Christian walk this week? What are you doing for the Lord? How are you serving him? What are you, what are you struggling with this week? How can I pray for you? They were able to watch his life, and his life was a continual example for them. But also, as Paul was thrown into prison in his time during Philippi, he was also able to watch, they were also able to watch his trust and his faithfulness and his boldness, and that served as a continual thrust on their spiritual journey. But there was a danger that Paul wanted to warn them again because they could fall too easily in the trap of depending too much on Paul and his physical presence in their spiritual life. They were looking forward to the moment when Paul would perhaps be able to return to Philippi and be with them once again. So Paul wanted to encourage them. He says, you have been obedient to God in my presence with you. He says, now do so much more in my absence. Paul knew that he wasn't always going to be there for the church at Philippi. He wasn't even present in this moment. We've all heard the old adage, you know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. What that means is that when the one who's in charge is absent, the tendency is for others to slack off on their commitment. And Paul knew that there could be a temptation for the church at Philippi to relax a little bit, right? You know, Paul's not here. He's not going to be here challenging us in those things. He's not going to be there watching everything that's going on. But Paul says that the church at Philippi was different. And this is the encouraging thing that we see in this process of responsibility. He says, just as you have now always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He says, you've already began to do that. He says, I've heard from Epaphroditus how you've continued in the faith. And he said, continue to do that. In case I don't make it back, in case I don't make it out of prison. He said, don't rely upon me for your spiritual walk, but continue in my absence. Now, for most of us in this room, we, we have never sat under the feet of the Apostle Paul, right? We never sat in his physical presence. But you know where we're tempted to do this? We're tempted to do this with our parents. When we're at home, we have our parents there. And there are many times where people grow up in, at church, and or they grow up in their family, they go to church, and their parents are there, and their parents are there to encourage them on in their spiritual walk. And they become to rely too much upon the encouragement of their parents or friends for their spiritual walk. And so then when their parents are gone, they move out of the house, that spiritual walk begins to wane. And so Paul here tells us that sanctification is a process of responsibility, that we have to take responsibility to ensure that we're continuing to go in Christ. 
It's not all on the pastor. It's not all on the deacons. It's not all on the Sunday school teachers or our friends. It's a process that we have to take responsibility for. Paul says, as you've done it in my absence or in my, in my presence, now do it much more in my absence. But it's not just a responsible process. It's not just something that we have to make sure that we're doing, but it's also a consuming process. Look at verse 12 again. He says, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Now, the word that Paul uses here for working is something that you're working through a process. You're taking great pains in walking through that process. That's why I said it's a consuming process, because it's something you really have to give work to. It's not an easy task. The process of sanctification is not easy. Matthew Henry, when talking about the process of sanctification and salvation, he said, it's the great thing we should mind and set our hearts upon, and we cannot attain salvation without the utmost care and diligence. It's a consuming process, and it's necessary for us. Now, we have to be very clear this morning. So I want you to to take the time. If you're going to fall asleep this morning, don't fall asleep in the next five minutes because you need to hear this very clearly. We want to be very clear in what Paul is saying and what he isn't saying in this verse. Because there's a temptation for people, and, and I've heard it done, when they see Paul say here to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, they say, oh, see right there. Salvation is based upon work that we do as human beings. It's based upon our work. He says, work it out. Now, notice that Paul doesn't say work for your salvation or work to achieve your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. Because we're very clear as, as Baptists and as, as holding to a Reformed soteriology that it is God and God alone who has saved us. Second Timothy chapter 9, Paul says, speaking of Christ who has saved us and called us with a holy purpose or holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is granted to us in Christ Jesus. We know that the scriptures teach that salvation is a work of God and God alone. It is a work that God planned from the very beginning before the foundation of the earth. It's a work that God started in us by regeneration, by changing our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It's a work that God continued by granting us the ability to be able to trust in him. And it's a work that God complete, uh, that God continued by drawing us unto himself, saving us. And it's a work that God will ultimately complete by our glorification. We have nothing to offer because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We have nothing that we can give to God in our own strength and ability. So when Paul says here, work out your salvation, he's not talking about becoming a Christian. He's talking about the process of sanctification. He uses the word salvation because Paul is viewing it, as we talked about in the beginning, that salvation in the grand scheme of things is a lifelong process. We are justified in the very beginning, we are sanctified throughout the course of our life, and we are justified and completed in our salvation at the very end. We have the tendency to think of salvation in just that one moment when we professed faith in Christ. But what Paul is talking about here is that lifelong completion of the process of salvation that God is working in and out and through us. So Paul is not saying that we are working for our salvation, but he's saying that we are to work it out. We are to manifest it in our lives. God has worked the salvation in us, and now we're to work it back out of us. One of my favorite hymns growing up was a hymn by a gentleman by the name of John Samus that goes like this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust 
and obey. And that's it. This is what Paul is talking about here. He says, you have trusted in Christ and God has saved you from your sins. He has granted you forgiveness of sins. He's granted you eternal life. He said, now based upon that trust in Christ's redemptive work for you, he says, now you obey. He says, you work out your salvation and do those things. God has done what only he can do in regenerating and saving us and justifying us. But now as justified believers, we are called to a continued work in the process of sanctification. We are working it out on a daily basis. I said the idea points to something of you have to work at, something that you have to give effort to. And it's not only just that, but that word also points to the idea of bringing something to completion. God has begun a work in us. And he's going to ultimately bring it to completion. But it's interestingly enough that God has said the part of this process, he said, you've got to put in the work. You've got to put in the effort. You've got to put in a part of this process to continue to seek after me, to grow in your spiritual journey. One commentator says that God does not give the house, but he gives the foundation and the beams and the hammer and the nails, and then we are to set to work to building the house. God does not give the garden, but he gives the soil and the seed and the water, and we put all those things together, and we see God's work happening in our life. But when we understand that this is a consuming process, when we understand that there's work involved, what we understand is that we can't give up too soon. We can't stop halfway. We can't abandon the race. This is why Paul uses those metaphors of, of athleticism over and over again. When he says, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Don't stop the race too early. I remember not too long ago seeing a video online of, of somebody who was running a race. And it's amazing how many times this happened because they had multiple incidents of this in this one video of somebody, whether they were on a bicycle or, or running a marathon, that they started celebrating too early, right? They, they saw the finish line. They thought they had too much. They had, had a great lead. And so they slowed down, put their hands up, started celebrating. And right as they just put their hands up, another guy whizzes by them and takes the victory. And sometimes we can be tempted to quit too early. Sometimes it's trials and tribulations. We think, I just don't know that I can do this anymore. I'm just going to give up. I shared with you the story one time of when I tried to run a, uh, a, a 5K. No practice, no preparation, just showed up, bought some shoes, and went and ran. And about halfway through, I wanted to die. I wanted to give up. I wanted to jump off the bridge that we were running over because that's how bad I hurt. But I kept pushing forward because I wanted to see the finish line. And that's what we have to do. There's going to be moments and times where we struggle. But we've got to keep pushing forward because that's the process of sanctification. God is working in us and through us, and it is a consuming process. We've got to give everything in our lives to this. We can't do this half-heartedly. We've got to give everything about our being to the cause of Christ. I've been reading this past week a biography about uh, Ann Judson. Ann Judson was the first wife of Adrian Judson. And this book was written in the 1800s. It's been long out of print. Uh, but what I've been encouraged by is oftentimes books about missionaries, typically ones written in a more uh, contemporary culture, have the tendency to gloss over things. Uh, they kind of show you the high points and the beautiful things of what happens on the mission field. This book doesn't gloss over anything. This book shows every single horror, terror, up and down, in and out, that the Judson family endured while mission, being missionaries in Burma in the early 1800s. 
But what encouraged me by this fact was no matter what they faced, they just kept pushing forward. There were times of imprisonment, times of sickness, the loss of children, loss of friends, loss of freedom. But they knew what God had called them to, and they said, we're just going to keep pushing forward because we trust in the Lord. And God has called each of us in this room to this process of sanctification, and we can't give up. We must keep pushing forward. William Hendrickson said, they must strive to produce the fruit Uh, to produce in their lives all the fruit of the Spirit, they must aim at nothing less than spiritual and moral perfection. And we know we can't obtain to those things. We're never going to be spiritually perfect on this world until God takes us home. But this is what we should be striving for. We should be giving our all to these things. You think about an athlete who, who gives their entire life. Somebody doesn't become a professional athlete because they practice once a month. They become a professional athlete because they give their lives to that. They practice every single day. They study plays when they're not in the gym or when they're not on the field. They watch videos. They learn from people. They practice. They pursue it. They give their lives to it. And as Christians, we should give our lives to this process of sanctification, saying, God, do what you need to do in me. Help me to be obedient to you. Show me what I should do. But it's also a thoughtful process. Look at the end of verse 12, because he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's a thought process that goes into this. What, what is the attitude? What is the motivation for this consuming process of sanctification? If we're going to give our whole lives to this, we have to understand what's the attitude that drives us to do that. And Paul says it's to be done in fear and trembling. Now, at first glance, this seems to be a terrifying prospect, Right? Fear and trembling? Is this, is this really what God wants us to do? Are we to be cowering in fear? But the fear that Paul alludes to here is not a slavish fear. It's not the fear of a slave who, who is suffering the torment of his master. It's not the slave or the fear of, of somehow suffering punishment. But it is a fear or terror or of reverential awe. It's a fear of understanding who God is and how little we are. It's a fear of understanding that we have to take serious caution in our life because we understand what's expected of us and we understand how weak and frail we are. We understand what God asks of us and we understand that we cannot trust in our own abilities to push us forward in this process. How many have ever heard the phrase, you know, well, just follow your heart. That seems to be the mantra of the world we live in, right? Just follow your heart. Do what your heart tells you to do. That is the most damnable doctrine that's ever existed. Because if you follow your heart, you know what you're going to end up doing? You're going to end up pursuing self and sin, and you'll end up in hell. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked, the Scripture tells us, above all things who can understand it. We don't want to follow our heart. We want to follow Christ. We want to follow His Word. We want to follow what He instructs and tells us to do. This fear that Paul talks to is a fear of of being disobedient to God. It's a fear of saying, I don't want to do anything that would be disobedient to God. I don't want to do anything that would cause me to do anything that God doesn't want me to do. It's a recognition of saying, I want to depend upon Christ for my guidance and my strength and my help because in my own ability, I will just displease Him. I will do what is wrong. I will do what I should not do And he says, I'm going to have this fear. 
The idea of trembling comes to the idea of shaking. We see it pointed out all throughout the scriptures. Psalm chapter 2, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 119, my flesh trembles for fear of you and I'm afraid of your judgments. This is not a fear of being lost. When Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he's not saying fear that you may lose your salvation. But it's actually a fear of not being obedient. It's a fear of not walking in Christ. It's a fear of following after those things that would cause us to tumble. It's a fear of grieving the Lord. William Barclay said, when we really love a person, we're not afraid of what they may do to us, but we're afraid of what we may do to them. We don't want to hurt them. How do you think about relationships that you have? Oftentimes, we're more, we're more generous in people hurting things, saying things, hurtful things to us than, than we would say, I don't want to do anything hurtful to them. I don't want to cause them to be upset. I don't want to do anything that would offend them. And this is the kind of fear and reverence that Paul is pointing to here, that we love God so much that we don't want to do anything to disappoint Him. We don't want to do anything to be disobedient to Him. So Paul says this is the attitude that we must have. We have to work out our salvation, go through the process of sanctification with this reverential awe and respect of God. And this is a work that we must give our entire being to. We must pursue the process of sanctification. Brothers and sisters, you're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and just in your own strength say, well, I'm just going to live this day and I'm going to do what's right. You've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit. And when somebody cuts you off in traffic, and the temptation is for you to get angry at them, you've got to say, no, that's not what God wants me to do. I'm going to choose to do it differently. When somebody at work says, hey, listen, we figured out a way to cheat the time clock. We can all get off a little bit early today because the boss is going out and, and they won't ever know, but we can get paid for the rest of the day. You're going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Because God is working in me and I'm going to make the decision to do the right thing. It's a process. And it's a process that, Paul says that we're responsible to do. He says, for you, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But I want you to notice the next part, verse 13, because here's where Paul flips the switch. Because he says it's something that we are responsible for as humans, but ultimately he says it is a process that we are dependent upon God. Remember at the very beginning, I said that sanctification is a two-part process. It's a part that God expects us to do these certain things, but it's also a part where God's sovereignty and his power is in control. So we see that verse 13, it's a dependent process. It says, for it is God who is at work in you. Here we see that word work again, and the word that Paul uses here is the idea of energy. It's giving energy or strength to something that is, being, that is happening. And Paul said it is here that it is God who's at work in us. God has given us the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to go back to the Father, but I'm going to pray that the Father will send one to come to be with you. So God has sent us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwells in each and every one of us, enabling us to do what Paul says that we must do. Because we can't do it in our own strength. We can't do it in our own ability. But thanks be to God, He's given us the Holy Spirit so that when those things come up and we have decisions to be made, we know what the Scripture teaches us, and by the power of the Spirit, we can choose the right thing. And we can reject the wrong thing. But the Scripture tells us, that God will not tempt us above what we can stand, but always provides for us an opportunity and a way out. So when we face temptation and we choose the wrong thing, it is not because God has given us something that we cannot stand against. It is because we 
in that process of sanctification, have said, I want to do what I want to do and not what God has called me to do. But God has given us strength. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us this power. He's given us this ability because we are his workmanship. Paul says in Ephesians, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. That's the process of sanctification, doing what he's called us to do, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, brothers and sisters, we we have to be careful because we're not wanting to allude to the idea of legalism and saying that there's a certain list of things and do's and don'ts, and if you keep this list, then you're holy, and if you don't keep this list, then you're not holy. But there is clear things in scriptures that the the Bible tells us that these are the ways that a Christian should live their life. These are the things that a Christian should do. These are the things that a Christian should not do. And we oftentimes fail in one regard or the other, but it does not mean that we don't continue depending upon the power of the Holy Spirit to strive to be better than we were the day before. It's not legalism. It's not an idea of of saying that, that, um, that you can become perfect. But it's the desire to say, I want to be obedient to God. I want to please Him in all regards. The same way when you go to work and you do your job to the best of your ability because you want to please your employer. You want to do a good job. You want to show that you love your job. You want to show that you are a hard worker. You do those things in order to please Him. So we do these things in our life because we understand what Christ has done for us. And we want to please God in our actions. Hebrews tells us that he will equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and forever. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, when we struggle with sin and when we struggle with the process of sanctification, it is not because God has not given us what we've needed. It's because we're not relying enough upon him. We all come to those places sometimes. And when we realize that, we go to him and say, God, help me to rely more upon the power of your spirit. Help me to rely more upon the power of your grace. Help me to rely more upon your word and trusting you and knowing you. Because without the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, no one can complete this process. But I want you to see that it's also an expectant process. Look back again at verse 13. He says, both to will and to work. It's been said that the reason that things often don't get done is that you have people on one side who have the desire but not the ability, and you have people on the other side who have the ability but not the desire. Let me say that again. You have people who have the ability but not the desire, And you have people who have the desire but not the ability. And so because you have those on the opposite sides, nothing ever gets done. But thanks be to God that in the work of the Christian life, in the process of sanctification, that's not the way that it is because God gives us both the desire and the ability. Because he says to will and to work. Paul says in this process of sanctification that what's happening throughout our life is God is giving us the will. He's giving us the desire. The psalmist writes in 119 verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. God, give me your desires. God, give me your reasonings. And what we need to understand is if we want to have the desire and the will of God, how do we learn that? We learn that through his word. So if, if we say, 
I don't know what God wants me to do. I'm struggling with knowing God's desire for my life. I'm struggling with knowing the will of God. The first question we need to ask ourselves is, are we spending time in his word? Are we reading the Bible? Because the only way that God shows us those things is by his revealed word in his scriptures. So we go to the Bible and as we read those things, then those things are opened up to us. And God has given us that desire to be obedient to him, to follow after him and to pursue him. Why is it in the Christian life that things are different than they were before we were Christian? Why do we have a desire to read the Bible, a desire to pray? Why do we have a desire to come on Sunday morning and fellowship with the saints? Why do we have a desire to live a life obedient to Christ? Why would you have a desire to suffer the hardships of life but yet glorify God? Why do we have a desire to fight against evil in this world? Why in the past have people had the desire and the willingness to go to the flame and the gallows and the lions and to death? It's solely because of the desire that God puts in our heart that we want to please Him and to honor Him and to seek after Him. Again, the psalmist writes, Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice deeds of wickedness with men who do iniquity. He says, Don't let my heart pursue the wrong things, but Father, give me your desire. Give me your will and teach me what I need to do. The Holy Spirit indwelling in us makes this a possibility, not just a possibility, but an actual reality. The language that Paul uses here means not just to know the will of God and to do the will of God, but to keep on learning the will of God and to keep on working out the will of God. So God not only gives us the desire, but he also gives us the ability. Through the process of sanctification, through growing in him, God teaches us his will, but not only does he teach us what he desires for our life, but then he gives us the ability on how we can do it. Because again, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. Even if we make a decision in our own human will to strive for the Christian life, we cannot make it happen on our own. If we were to go around the room this morning, I'm sure many of you would give credence to the fact that you've seen somebody in the course of your Christian life who was, as Jesus said, a soil that was planted on the rocky ground. And they sprang up, and everything looked beautiful, looked a wonderful plant. It was green, it was vibrant. This person made a profession of faith, they were showing up at church, they were reading their Bible, they were doing all these things, and then something happens, and then you're just gone. It just withers away. And it was because they had never truly been saved. They never truly had the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. They were trying to do all those things because they saw other people doing those things, other people going to church, other people reading their Bible, other people doing those things. And they said, I'm going to imitate those things because that's what I'm supposed to do. But because they were doing it in their own strength, they fell by the wayside. But for the Christian, it's not so. Because Paul said he has given us both the will and the ability to work. He's given us the desire, but also the ability. In Article 3, in, 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 the second, excuse me, in the third and fourth canon of Dort, here's what it says. It says, speaking of this process, he infuses, speaking of God, he infuses new qualities into the will, which though herefore dead, he quickens. Being formerly disobedient and refractory, he renders it good, obedient, and pliable. He strengthens it like a good tree that it may bring forth the fruits of good actions. Whereupon the will, thus renewed, is not only um, influenced by God, but in consequences of this influence, itself becomes active. 
So it says God changes us in salvation. He, he changes what is dead to being alive. And then he changes our will and our desires on the inside to give us the desire to do what he's called us to do, but gives us the strength and the ability to be able to do it. It would be wicked of God to tell us, this is what I expect of you, and then leave us in our own strength to do it. But he knew that we could. And so he has given us the power to do that. And in this process, it calls for us to endure. It goes back to that language that we've referred to several times. This process of willing and working for God is a process of endurance. The Christian life is not often easy. In fact, sometimes it's, it's harder more than it ever is easy for us because we've been called to live in this world that is so diametrically opposed to Christ. We live in a world that is so set apart to the idea of Christ and the truth of the gospel. But we're to continue to go forward. We're continue to will and to work what God has called us to do. Paul says in Hebrews, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before you. To the Corinthian church, Paul wrote, run in such a way that you may win. Later on, he would say, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The process of sanctification is a process of endurance. Sometimes we see it happen quickly, and sometimes it's much more slow. Sometimes we're growing tremendously fast in the Lord, and we look back and we're pleased, and sometimes that process is a little slower. But what we want to see in our walk is that we're continually moving forward. That we're continually making progress in the Lord. The final thing I want you to notice as we close is that this is a rewarding process. Paul says that God does all of this. That we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. I said earlier that we should view salvation in three tenses, past justification, present sanctification, and future glorification. The end of all of this is to bring glory and honor to God. God saves us for his own glory. God justifies us for his own glory. He sanctifies us for his own glory. He will glorify us for his own glory because we didn't deserve it. There's no reason for God to look down from heaven upon sinful men who had rejected him and spit in his face and would curse him and slander him and do all kinds of evil to oppose him for him to look down from heaven and say, those are the people. I'm going to forgive them of everything they've done wrong. I'm going to not only save them, but I'm going to make them joint heirs with Jesus. I'm going to give them all the blessings and the promises that I have, and I'm going to give to them eternal life that they may live forever in my presence and experience my glory and splendor forever. God did all that because it glorifies Him. In His holiness and His righteousness, it says, look at what I have done, and it brings glory and honor to the name of God. Now, the growth of our Christian life is not without benefit to us. Because as we are sanctified, it draws us closer to God. And as we are sanctified, we reap the rewards of that. 
We reap the rewards of a close and intimate relationship with God. We see God working in our life, and we see the blessings that He gives to us as His followers, and ultimately, we will receive the reward of eternal life with Him. Our sanctification benefits others because they are encouraged and challenged and spurred on in in their respective Christian walks. But ultimately, our growth, our sanctification, our salvation glorifies God. Because He should receive all the praise, the honor, and the glory. And when we understand that, we understand that we are living out this life because we want to be pleasing to the Lord. We're not trying to impress the pastor. We're not trying to impress our spouse or our family members. We're not trying to impress the world. We're living out this Christian life and growing because we want to say, God, I love you. I am so thankful for what you've done for me. And I want to live my life in such a way as to bring you the most praise, the most honor, and the most glory. So that we stand before him. We will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Lord, we need your help. Oh, how desperately we need your help. Far too often are we tempted in our own strength to try to live the Christian life. Far too often, Lord, do we depend upon ourselves in this process of sanctification. And Lord, we know that you have given us a responsibility to work these things out, to work and strive to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you. But Father, help us to never try to do that in our own ability. But as your word tells us here, to rely upon the power that you have given us to both will and to work. The desire and the ability. Lord, transform our hearts. Lord, we want to be different today than we were yesterday. We want to be different tomorrow than we are today. Lord, help us to see each and every day that process of your sanctification in our lives continuing to grow. Lord, help us to have that desire to be more and more conformed into the image of Jesus. Lord, not to grow our own strength, not to grow our own fame or to make us look good, but Father, because we want to please you. We want to honor you. We want to glorify your name. We want to demonstrate to the world of what a great God you are, that you would take someone like us and use us for your purposes and for your glory. Father, we pray, Lord, transform our hearts on a day-to-day basis. Lord, I know that there may be some here who are struggling. Lord, maybe there's one here this morning who... They know they've never put their faith and trust in Christ. They've been struggling all this time to do this in their own strength. And they continue falling and they've asked the question, Lord, why can I not seem to do this? Lord, this morning, would it be today that you would draw them unto yourself, that they would trust in you alone for salvation, not in their ability, but trusting in you alone. Father, there may be some here who They've been struggling in the process of sanctification. They know they've trusted in Christ. They know they're saved. But Lord, that desire and that will has not been there. 
Lord, perhaps because they've been struggling in their own strength. Perhaps because they've been fighting against it. Lord, this morning, would today be the day for them? Or that they would relinquish that control over to you? Lord, that they would be willing to put in the work, to strive after you. But it's because you have given them that will. You've given them that desire and you've given them the ability to pursue it. Father, help all of us. Lord, to make this the priority of our lives. We're so tempted to put it in everything else. We're tempted to put it into our jobs. Lord, we can even be tempted to put it into our families. But Lord, our top priority in this life must be to live in such a way as to glorify and to honor you, to bring praise and glory and honor to your name. And we pray, God, she would help us do that. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.